Hi, Jim Wilson here. Welcome back to NGB Ideas. This podcast is about innovators, disruptors, and industry leaders in Canada's life sciences community. Our guest today is Josh Patel from Molecular Forecaster in Montreal. Josh, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Jim. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. You were born and raised in Montreal's vibrant Jewish community where you attended Jewish elementary school and you met your future wife in a grade nine Jewish youth group meeting and started your work career while you were still in high school. So I'd I'd like to peel back the onion quite a few layers if we can. If you can remember that far back, what jobs did you have? I started with my first job working at Wendy's when I was 15. From there, I worked at a toy store starting into university. I was an assistant manager at a toy store here in Montreal. And then moved across the hall to Lens Crafters, which as someone who's been wearing glasses since grade four was a great job. Did any of those jobs in particular teach you anything that you carry to this day? Probably not much at Wendy's. Toy Store and Lens Crafters, in both jobs, I worked in a customer-facing role, learning to interact with people, how to offer service, how to engage with people that you're literally just meeting and you're trying to build a connection kind of instantaneously, learn about them, what they like, what they don't like. It's not too far off from learning pain points that we talk about in when you're running a startup. Your clients all have pain points. That's what you're trying to address. That's how you assign value. We often carry life lessons from unexpected sources, and I've, I've got similar situations in my past. If I can touch on perhaps an uncomfortable part of your childhood, your parents divorced when you were 11 years old. That must have been a, a difficult time. Definitely shaped a lot of who I am. I lived with my mom for a while and and visited with my dad and uh, my mom moved to the States when I was 16. I lived with my sister for a year, just the two of us, then lived with my dad. And as you grow up, you start to understand those complexities of life a little bit more. Definitely forced me to be independent, to learn about being resilient, learning about who I am and putting a lot of things in perspective. Facing that adversity really builds a thick skin and, and allows you to know, unfortunately, what life can be about. I think many of us have gone through similar situations, unfortunately. When you were growing up, you played a lot of sports, and I understand bowling was on that list. What was your highest score? Do you remember? In a single game, I bowled a 300. Perfect game. In a three-game score, it was 830-something, which at the time, if you'll allow me to humble brag for a second, was a, a record for the 17 to 21 age group. Since been surpassed by athletes way better than me. And yes, I will call bowlers athletes. (laughs) My family, going back to my my grandparents, my parents were all into bowling and and I I followed suit. I actually went to Israel to compete in the Maccabea Games. So I got to go there with my dad. We both competed representing Canada. That's kind of where I left that career behind. I have to ask, you still have your suit, your shoes, your, your shirt and your bowling ball? Yes. (laughs) <laughs> it's been out of use for a while. The two labs I was in for my, for grad school and for my postdoc I became aware of my bowling history and always tried to get us to go bowling. I think in the last seven, eight years, I've been bowling once. But the equipment remains. <laughs> Good. In high school, you had a chemistry teacher who talked to you about falling asleep in class. Yeah. Do you remember what that teacher said? I was struggling in high school. I studied, but I wasn't the best at sitting and and listening all the time. This teacher identified to me, I guess, based on his experience with other students, that I seemed to not be paying attention as much as I had previously. I wasn't totally connecting in class, and he suggested that I might not actually be sleeping enough. Maybe I should be spending less time, you know, trying to study notes and and doing last-minute things and rather 
focus a little bit more on getting rest. <laughs> Balance. Yeah. Sleep, just super important. You know, resting your mind. Your mind is a muscle. Your brain is a muscle, just like the rest of you. And you got to recharge at some point. Otherwise, it's just not going to be able to give you that 100%. Another important life lesson. You had a, an organic chemistry teacher in, I think, 2008 who encouraged you to study computer science and you followed her advices. What struck you about what she said? I had a, a teacher who just had such a great passion for organic chemistry and I loved the problem-solving aspects of it. And before I went off to university, I asked her, I really want to study chemistry. I'm going to pursue that and major. What would you suggest that I get involved in? She immediately pointed to computer science saying that our world is moving towards one of automation. And it doesn't mean that you'll be replaced. But if you don't know how the machines work, it'll be very hard for you to move forward. She highly encouraged that we learn how software, hardware, how all these things function so that we can play around with those tools. Mm. Another lucky conversation to have. Absolutely. So you got to McGill. You were thinking biology, but your undergraduate and graduate degrees are in chemistry. Why the pivot? What changed your mind? I was just better at chemistry. It was more problem solving. It was almost more like math, where if you understand the basic rules of the game, then you can grow those and expand them into bigger and more complex problems. And I really enjoyed that aspect of it. I understand you think chemistry is like magic. What do you mean by that? In chemistry, you, you have a solution, it's a clear liquid, and then you add another liquid to it, and all of a sudden you get a solid that comes out and precipitates out. Those things visually just look like magic. There is an understanding to it, similar to magic, no spoilers. So, it, so it's like magic, but it's real. Yeah, and real oh. useful. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> true. When many undergrads graduate, they're unsure of what to do next. And I was one of them, full stop. What did you do next? I pursued grad school. That was kind of the next logical step that kept as many doors open as possible. I had friends that were pursuing it. I could stay in the city. I found a great fit for a long supervisor. And so the shoe fit. And so I, I put it on. You mentioned it was difficult in high school. Did it become easier the further you went? Yeah, I was, I was one of those students that things kind of just came to naturally. I don't really know how to explain it. The way that I solve problems is really more by thinking on my feet than by memorizing. So coming back to the lack of sleep, where you can't think as effectively, that hurt me. I struggled in university with lectures where professors were just reading slides. It wasn't engaging for me. At grad school, you worked with a professor who got you on the path of software development for medicinal and organic chemistry applications. I'd appreciate you explaining to our listeners, but mostly for me, what that means. Some folks will call it theoretical chemistry. Some folks will call it computational chemistry. The idea here is taking the principles that underlie the theories. It's encoding those principles for a computer to assist you in either simulating a process or understanding a process. And so for me, who really enjoyed the problem solving and theory of chemistry, but was terrible in the experimental lab, I'm the kind of person who leads the instructions for a recipe seven times over before I pour the water into the pan. So I was terrible in the lab, very inefficient, but I enjoyed the, the concepts behind it. And so here was a way for me to marry that passion with my knowledge in computer science and the ability to write computer programs that would solve problems for you. I found that to be very rewarding. So here was a professor, uh, his name is Nicolas Matessier at McGill, that blended those two things. 
that was never a course of material for us. So I didn't even know that was a thing that was possible. Thank you for that. At this point, you started solving chemistry problems with computer knowledge. Is this where you got the idea for the company? Go lab, what to say here. Spun out the company in 2010. I joined the lab for my PhD actually in 2011. So I came after, but that was my exposure to the technology, to the company, kind of all at the same time. Huh. So Molecular Forecaster was a startup that spun out of McGill in 2010. Nick was one of the founders or the founder? Nick had a co-founder. His name was Eric Terrier. He was a research associate in the lab in McGill at the time. He was with the company for about six years. And their exit was precipitated by? Eric had an exit because that time in Montreal, probably in Canada writ large, but certainly in Montreal where there was a pharma presence, was a time when all that pharma left. The opportunities here declined drastically. Eric had two kids, needed to supply for a family. This wasn't really an option. There wasn't much of a startup culture, certainly not like it is today. So Eric moved on to other opportunities. Nick, throughout all of it, remained a full-time prof. Was McGill University intimately involved in the commercialization process? McGill incentivized Nick to commercialize. There wasn't this same culture that there is now. So it was, I don't want to say relatively new, but it certainly wasn't as common as we're, we're seeing today or, and hoping to continue to see. I know now that I am more involved in this relationship. Mark Weber, involved at the tech transfer office at McGill, wears a lot of hats and is, is definitely a superstar in, in trying to help with these commercialization efforts. So your business has grown organically without any venture capital backing. And if I understand correctly, you have no investors. Correct. Tell us a bit about that journey. How, how did you finance this company? Was it bootstrapped from day one? So it was bootstrapped from day one. Being built off of academic technology or academic research means that there's a publication track record. So that certainly assisted in getting the name out there, getting some recognition, at least in the scientific community. For those first seven, eight years when the company was, I don't want to call it a hobby, but was definitely not a full-fledged startup, there was one or two contracts a year. There was some money in the bank. There wasn't really much of a need to invest beyond that. Then when I took over as CEO in 2018, there was enough in the bank to revamp a website, get a small office space here in the Techno Park in Montreal, what used to be the Neomed Institute and then today is Edmari Bioinnovations. It's a wonderful organization. Yeah. I didn't take salary. I mean, I guess that was the investment at the time. My discussion with my wife was, this is going to be a two-year experiment. I'm not interested in going the investment route for now. I want to see if I can build something to the point of being able to take a comfortable salary and continue to build a company this way. And so we set a timeline, you know, a deadline on it. For those first six, 12 months, I would take a little bit here, a little bit there. But by and large, I wasn't taking much salary. Very, very privileged to have been in that situation where I could do that. My wife was working full time. I had been saving, been working since I'm 15, not a big spender. So there was enough for us to, to get by and be okay very lucky that things took off and here we are. When did you know that this was a viable business? I probably still don't know that. <laughs> I'm always skeptical. I think it's always good to stay on your toes. Probably within a year, it started to become more clear that there's something there. We made a couple of pivots. There was a couple of learning on the fly lessons that we did. But we definitely started to find our feet and get some traction. And somewhere in that six to 12 month mark, things were more obvious that there's something here. Let's keep going. How was your experience with Edmare Bioinnovations? Can you touch on that for a bit? Being located at Neomed, where it became Edmare, 
our, our paths collided essentially. We applied for the inaugural accelerator program that they, they started here in Quebec. So we were part of that first two years. That was one touch point throughout that time that we were involved with them. We started working with them in a scientific capacity where we're offering our services to their team. We work closely with uh, Claudio Storino and his team on a variety of different projects, supporting the portfolio they're working on. So it's really a nice way for us to have an impact across the country on multiple drug discovery programs through one outlet. And they offered us a variety of support through that accelerator program. There was mentorship for me and coaching for me as an entrepreneur. We got support in communications and legal and marketing. It's been a great experience learning from all of them. Molecular Forecaster is a research-as-a-service company, which is analogous to a contract research organization, a CRO. Your team has expertise in computer-aided early-stage drug design, and you now work with small biotech startups all the way up to big pharma companies. Why do clients come to you? Why, why not someone else? What sets us apart is really the confluence of our capabilities. We've developed our own technology that's proprietary to us, unique in how it functions and attacks a problem with a very chemistry-centric point of view. So there's a lot of domain expertise that's been built into the technology. On the business model side, we're offering this as a service, bringing our research expertise, growing our team, and offering that through transparent, credible service that's built on a lot of integrity. comes down to my principles. What I'm trying to hone in on is computationally, anything is possible. I can make a computer do anything, well, maybe not me personally, especially these days. My coding days are a bit behind me. You can make a computer do anything that you want it to do. We could simulate any process. We could show you any small molecule interacting with any protein that you want. Is that real? Is that something that would happen in a cell, in a human body? That's a much more difficult question to answer. You became CEO of Molecular Forecaster in late 2018? How did you end up in the role? Luck, opportunity. I kept in contact with Nick after my PhD. Moved to San Francisco for a postdoc at UCSF with Professor Brian Schroekett. I knew that Eric had to look for other opportunities and was moving on. Nick recognized that as a full-time prof, this wasn't something that he was prepared to do and couldn't do effectively full-time. I saw this as a, a low-risk opportunity to build something, to solve more problems. I took a flyer. It was something that would give me freedom, would give me the opportunity to get the best of maybe the academic world where I get to lead research and lead a group and set the culture and philosophy of the team. I am try to be very humble, but I'm definitely arrogant about believing in myself. And I believed and still believe that if it didn't work out, I would find another opportunity and it was worth a shot. What do you find is the most challenging part of your job? that it changes every day. You need to balance everything that you do. I think to be effective as an entrepreneur, you can't be too high, you can't be too low, you can't be too nearsighted, you can't be too farsighted, and you can't be too in the nitty-gritty, you can't be too big picture, you know, with being oblivious to the rest. I understand you're a bit of an introvert, but you've said you feel comfortable in the discomfort of your role. What do you mean by that? Probably more in the fact that it changes every day. I don't know that my I'll ever come to terms with my introverted self. Large conferences and things like that. I'm used to stepping aside for 15 minutes just to catch my wits. As an entrepreneur, you've got things flying at you left and right. Fires to put out, internal, external, things in your control, out of your control. And you got to know how to respond to them. Your business relies on it. Your team is watching you. 
they're going to react accordingly. Being able to manage that chaotic environment in a calm, collected, rational, reasonable, responsible way is, is not always easy. You know, we're all human at the end of the day. Hmm. How did you and your team make out during the pandemic? Everything that we do is virtual. So working computationally was very easy. A lot of companies, in fact, turn to computational solutions to try and find something to do. So the pandemic, ironically, had a positive lining for your company. We look for those positives. I wouldn't say that they were glaring. Right. So your business goal initially was to be a software sales company that licensed out technology. We still pursue that model, but it's not the majority of our business. When we started out on that, you know, I had a lot to learn about sales, the infrastructure that's behind software. Again, as an academic scientist, we're focused on, you know, what's the accuracy? What are the, the, the fine nuances, the percentages? We don't necessarily think about how is this multi-site, multi-institution pharma going to use my software? How are they going to share data? How is it going to remain secure? These are things that at the time, you know, I was admittedly very naive to. And so while we were figuring that out, there was a big demand that was coming our way to collaborate, to look for, for services where companies that were built on excellent chemistry, biology, biochemistry, and that was their spin-out technology or their startup technology, they didn't have the expertise or the infrastructure in-house to benefit from what we knew. But it's certainly complementary. And so they would ask us, not for the tech to be put in their hands, but could we use the tech and guide them, teach them what we know, and share that information? Having the expertise in the domain and being chemists originally, or, or most of us by training, we speak the same language, we understand the challenges, the pain points, we could communicate what we do in a way that they can understand. That makes for very effective collaboration. So our business started to really grow on that service side. And today it's probably about an 80-20 split between service and software. Huh. So when you think about your company's journey to date, what is your biggest win and what are you most proud of? I think the biggest thing for me is really that we've stuck to our guns in a lot of ways in terms of what we think is right. What was important for me was to not be greedy and was to do things for the right reason. Let the money be secondary and not at the forefront. We want to accelerate drug discovery programs. We want to discover medicines for Canadians, for citizens of, of all countries around the world. And we've stuck to that. As an entrepreneur, you get a lot of voices in your ear. Some you ask for, some you don't necessarily ask for. And it's up to you to process that information. You go to sleep at night with your mind and your heart and your decisions. I'm very, very comfortable and happy with what we've built, what we continue to build, what we're working towards. As you see all these great announcements. You see all these these, these things that, that people are achieving and accomplishing and, and striving for. And, and that's great if that's what they're looking for. But that doesn't have to be what you want. Coming to terms with that, really knowing who you are and being comfortable with that, assuming people will, will, will resonate with that message and you are providing value, it's hard to do. What does the future hold for Molecular Forecaster? Where do you see the company and in, in you in three to five years? Hopefully continuing to grow. Today, we're, we're eight people. I'd certainly like to reach 15, 20. We're looking to invest more in our own R&D and get back to adding capabilities, functionality, solving new problems. The problems don't necessarily change in terms of coming up with medicines, but the way you go about it can. That's great. Some of the listeners of this podcast are likely startups, 
in a position that you were in the not too distant past. Is there any advice you'd like to pass along to those people? Think big and be happy with what you do. At the end of the day, you are the entrepreneur. You are the founder. It is your name on it. And you have to go to sleep at night with what you are creating, working on, focusing on. If you're comfortable with that, I think that that's what you should be striving for. Ties to the second one. Think big. Go out there and get it. You need to think about what you need to succeed to get to where you need to go. And that's for a broader benefit. You need to start with that selfish attitude. Effective brainstorming, which is especially hard for, I think, a scientist, is to not think about the no right away. Just put your ideas down on paper. You just write. You're taught to not even think. Just keep writing. After you can start to put together ideas of how you reach certain endpoints. Historically, and I say this for myself as well, we're too focused on the path and not necessarily focused on how high can we reach. Think big and go out and get it. There are people that are like-minded that want to help you. Find them and go do it. Do you have a next great big idea on your horizon? If so, what is that idea? We got a lot of challenges as a society. There's a bunch of areas that need next great big ideas. And I'm, I'm sure it's going to come from younger people who are smarter than I am already. I have a two and a half year old son. The idea is, is in there. You're the one who's going to take the next big leap in combining ideas and, and combining different elements of education and putting them together into something amazing. There are tons of kids out there that are going to have that. It's about helping. And... You're obviously passionate about the journey that you're on, and I really appreciate you sharing it with us today. I have absolutely enjoyed speaking with you. Thank you so much for your time today. This, is, this has been great. Thank you, Jim. Thanks for the opportunity to get our message out there a little bit. For me personally, to share some of the thought behind the madness, oftentimes companies are websites and LinkedIn pages, and we don't always think about the people that, that are behind them. Really appreciate the opportunity. Thanks a lot, Jim. That was Josh Patel in Montreal. You can learn more about Josh and his team at molecularforecaster.com. This podcast was researched and produced by Tisha Prasad. The NGB Ideas podcast is part of Next Great Big Ideas, Canada's Life Sciences Innovation Summit in Hamilton, Ontario, the first Monday in October. Learn more about the summit at nextgreatbigideas.com. You can also follow me on social media at Lab Occupier. And I can be reached by email at jwilson at leonard, that's L-E-N-N-A-R-D, dot com. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>